This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 89, Get Bigger Pockets with Paul Moore. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious. Be stable. Be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. One of the coolest benefits of having this show has been introduced, being introduced to so many awesome people. One of those is Mr. Paul Moore. So we're going to be having him on our show today as a guest. But before I bring him on in our interview recording, I wanted to say hello to you, Holly Bach. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Hello, everyone. And we are going to be jumping right into this interview with Paul because he has so much content to share with all of our listeners. I wanted to get right to it. So let, let me introduce you to a, a man who's become a good friend of mine uh, over the last years through podcasting. What do you know? So Paul Moore, after graduating with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Ohio State, Paul started on the management development track at Ford Motor Company in Detroit. After five years, he departed uh, his job there to start a staffing company with a partner and they sold it to a publicly traded firm for $2.9 million five years later. Along the way, Paul was a finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year Award two years straight. So Paul later entered the real estate sector where he completed 85 real estate investments and exits. He's appeared on HGTV special real estate episodes. Uh, He's rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties, developed a waterfront subdivision. He started two successful online real estate marketing firms. He's successfully done three developments, including assisting with the development of a Hyatt Hotel and a multifamily housing project, uh, which led him into the multifamily investment arena. So Paul also co-hosts, if that wasn't all enough there, he also co-hosts the wealth building podcast called How to Lose Money. So he and I both share this weird topic uh, title for our podcasts, How to Lose Money. What a weird way to uh, title a podcast, but still it's an awesome show. And he's a frequent contributor to Bigger Pockets, uh, producing live video and blog content on a weekly basis. Paul is the author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing in 2016. So with that introduction, uh, I invite you to listen in on this wide-ranging interview with our dear friend, Paul Moore. Paul, welcome to Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me on. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. You've got uh, an incredible history. I thought you'd maybe just start with just telling our listeners a bit about where life has taken you, a little bit about your background, your expertise, and where life is today for you. Well, I can tell you that, and this is probably not what people expect to hear, but um, if anyone out there is a high-energy type A entrepreneur and they want to retire early or even semi-retire in their 30s, it's probably not going to (laughs) work. At least it didn't for me or anybody else I know that tried because I tried uh, 34 uh, at 34 years old, I sold my company, moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains, started a nonprofit organization, reaching out to international students studying in the U.S., and I was miserable. I became the worst version of myself, worst father. I thought I was going to be the, the ideal father, ideal husband, and my kids are all doing great now, but, you know, honestly, I wasn't the best version of myself at all, and um, so I started in real estate investing in the year 2000. And uh, the rest is history. I've done about a dozen things. I counted 
uh, within the real estate realm, including flipping houses and writing a few books and all kinds of other fun things along the way. So you went from 1.5 million in the bank to 2.5 million in debt and back to debt free 13 months later. Got to tell us that story. Yeah. So the short version of it is I had, you know, that money in the bank from selling my company to a publicly traded firm at 34. Uh, 10 years later, I was tied up in a ton of real estate projects. And this, you you may not remember, your listeners might not remember this thing called 2008 hit. Mm, And uh, (laughs) this, uh, I looked at my wife and family around December 2007. I didn't know how bad it was going to get, of course. And I said, hey, we're $2.5 million in debt. My partner just quit because he couldn't afford half of the interest payments on all this debt. And I see no way out. Let's try something fun. And we actually, I had been studying the life of a guy named George Mueller. Now, George Mueller, as you may know, uh, housed a total of 10,000 orphans during his lifetime in Bristol, England. And first of all, he never would have been in debt. But if he would have been, I think he would have done something outlandish because that's how he lived his whole life. And I said, hey, family, let's try something crazy. Let's give our way out of debt. And so we, starting January 1st, 2008, we started giving aggressively a set amount every week. And we said, well, this will either take us all the way to bankruptcy or possibly to the outcome I expect, which I really believe providentially we are going to see an amazing outcome here. And four weeks later, I was in a Subway restaurant. I met a real estate developer that I sort of knew there. And he gave me an idea for subdividing a piece of five-acre waterfront property that wouldn't work. I knew it wouldn't work. I'd already checked into it. But when he said it, something he said just made a light bulb moment go on for me, you know, go off for me, I guess. And uh, two days later, I was with my surveyor meeting with the county planning and zoning officials. And the lady looked up over her glasses. And she said, I can't believe you would propose something so outlandish. And you're right. There is a loophole in the law. You can do this. She said, so anyway, so and I ended up selling four of my five one-acre tracks that I had subdivided right, and I mean right, in the middle of the meltdown of August, September, October of 2008. And I was completely debt-free 13 months later. Amazing. Talk about not average financial strategies. So you gave your, you donated and gave your way out of debt. Yes. I love that. So you said providentially, I know you're a man of faith. How does giving your way out of debt a a sound financial strategy? It's probably a crazy financial strategy, but you know, in the kingdom of God, lots of stuff's upside down. You know, you die in order to live, you give in order to receive. There's all kinds of crazy things out there like that. And this was one of those times where I thought, well, you know, I felt like I was led to do that. I want to be clear. I don't think that that is something that would always work like a vending machine in the sky kind of thing. I don't think that would be true. In fact, I've heard a few other stories where it didn't like stuff like that didn't work. Maybe their motives were different. I don't know. But um, anyway, I I just think it was that, you know, that universal law of sowing and reaping Uh, people in Eastern religions call it, I think karma. Uh, I believe it's just a universal law and it's true for everybody. So good. So speaking of other secrets uh, of growing and attaining and maintaining wealth over not just your life, but over many generations, 
you know, what do you see uh, working for you? You've been in the world of real estate for many years now. You've seen a few ups and downs and sideways in, in the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the ways that the wealthy have used um, financial secrets and strategies to help them grow and protect their wealth? You know, when I got into real estate investing in my 30s, I, I realized that the, the really wealthy, successful people were in commercial real estate. And all I could think of were those malls, you know, that from the 70s, where now they're like, they're using them as old movie theaters that shut down, or they're, you know, maybe an old, uh, a, a, like a church that's not super successful renting out the old Sears or whatever. And I thought, man, I never want to be in commercial real estate. Why do people want to do that? And I had no idea, Mark, how powerful the, the, the formula, the value and leverage formula is in commercial real estate. Here's a quick summary. Um, if you have a residential home, and you are like Chip and Joanna Gaines Jr., and you fix it up to be like, you know, half a million dollar home. If every other house on the street's still at 300,000, you're not going to get your half a million out of it. You, we all know this. That's not the case in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, the value is a formula. It's value equals net operating income divided by the cap rate, which is also called the capitalization rate. And that's the normal rate of return investors would expect to get on that asset in that market at that time. And the cap rate used to be about 8 to 10%. Now it's typically around, in these days, 5 to 7%. And so, if again, the value is the income divided by the cap rate or the capitalization rate. So, if you can increase income and if you can somehow compress the cap rate, and there are ways to do that in certain circumstances, you can dramatically increase the value of a property. It's called forced appreciation. Here's a quick example. Um, uh, Jeff Bezos went around and took the light bulbs out of the vending machines and all the Amazon facilities. You may have heard that. And he did it because he wanted to save a few dollars because he knew that if he could save a few dollars with a price to earnings ratio as high as Amazon's is, if they add a dollar in income, that's $12 a year, that's, you know, you multiply it by the PE ratio and that's the value of the stock that goes up. So he's always looking to save dollars. Well, in commercial real estate, here's the value of a dollar. Now, this is stunning to me, even though I know this formula and I've, I've heard this many times. If you can increase the income uh, at an asset by a dollar, okay? Let's say you increase revenue by a dollar or you save a dollar in costs. That's, I'm really good at math, okay? $12 a year. <laughs> and that $12 a year, you divide that income, again, by the cap rate. Let's say it's 6%, 0.06. dollars by 0.06, if I did the math right in my head, is $200. One dollar, saved or added to your revenue adds $200 to the value of the property. But it's better than that because if the investor uses leverage, let's say 60%, which is a fairly moderate amount of loan to value ratio, if they use leverage, there's a 2.5x multiplier effect. So that $200 value of the asset effectively becomes like $500 impact on the equity. And so, very quick example, a mobile home park we just invested in recently, the uh, operator paved an acre of weeds. He put a beautiful fence around it 
as soon as he you know took over the property and he said okay everybody with a boat an rv or a third fourth or fifth car has to put it has to get rid of it or put it inside this paved fenced area and we're going to rent that and so they when they rent that out to all the people in the neighborhood and then they put it out there to the public eventually they'll be able to get that up to ten thousand dollars a month now that's 120,000 a year which first of all that's over a hundred percent roi on the hundred thousand dollars he spent to fence and pave this but it's so much better than that because $120,000 added to the income divided by a 6% cap rate is $2 million. Now, if he paid $5 million for that mobile home park and he leveraged it at 60%, that means there was $3 million in debt, $2 million in equity. He just increased the value by $2 million more. He doubled the value of the equity. And that was before he raised rents. That was before he filled other vacant lots. That was before he did other things to raise income at this park. And so that's the power of commercial real estate. And Mark, that's why I love it. If our listeners' heads aren't spinning yet, that's why the wealthy have retained their wealth and clear back to the pyramids why they've used real estate to do it. I mean, you've just explained it in a formula, but it's clear um, that any person who has built up the, the kind of wealth that we would all look to, they're putting real estate as a part of their overall portfolio. So why, why specifically right now, you've been looking at self-storage, you've been looking at mobile home parks, a lot of our clients use their bank on yourself policies to help uh, with the leverage piece that you just described. Uh, but how, and, and a lot of them use the self-storage concept, the mobile home park concept to do that. Why are those particular asset classes uh, so attractive to uh, investors these days? Great question. So the first reason is they are recession resilient. Um, if I had an apartment building, or let's say I was leasing a house to you for $1,000 a month and I raised your rent by 6%, you might move rather than pay that $60 a month, which is $720 a year, especially when you're thinking, I'm going to plan to stay in in a rental house for years to come. If I raise your rent on your self-storage unit by 6%, you're paying $100 a month. You're thinking, I'm only going to be here a few more months anyway, which is typical, typical thought process at least. You're probably not going to take a Saturday, rent a U-Haul, get your friends together to move all your stuff down the street to save $6 a month. In a mobile home park, it's even more dramatic. They're paying three, $400 a month for lot rent. If it gets raised by $30 a month, they're probably not going to spend $5,000 to move their single wide down the street or even $12,000 to move a double wide down the street. So these tenants are very, very sticky in up and down economies, number one. Number two, the thing I like even better is it's a very fragmented market. Uh, up to 98% of the mobile home park owners are uh, uh, mom and pop or independent operators, and they're not maximizing value. They're just, you know, riding along with whatever they have there. Sometimes they don't raise rent. Sometimes they don't work really hard to fill uh, vacant spots. Self-storage, about 76% of the operators are um, it, mom and pop or independent operators. And so there are a lot of, there are 53,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S. That's the same as Starbucks, Subway, McDonald's combined. 
combined. And so, yeah. And so if uh, 40,000 or so are independent operators, a lot of those mom and pops, there's a lot of meat on the bones. And so there are so many opportunities compared to multifamily, which I also love, uh, where only 7% of the uh, multifamily above 50 units are owned by independent operators typically. So mm. that's, that's a couple of things I love. Isn't there a, a NIMBY effect, not my backyard effect on uh, mobile home parks? And so oftentimes counties, cities, states will limit or even exclude the ability to start a new mobile home park, which suppresses uh, supply. Yeah, it's the only asset class that I'm aware of that has a decreasing supply every year and a stable or increasing demand. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm even aware of folks who are, you know, in the white collar, high income earning uh, that are looking for, you know, more community focused living scenario where they're tired of living in their condos or tired of living in an isolated environment and they want community and they want right. the front porch and they want where their kids can play in a safe place. And if you've built and forced appreciation and put the pool in and put a nice playground and, and really built a really nice environment in some of these mobile home parks, um, you're even going to attract folks with higher incomes. But yeah. you're right. Uh, for the folks that are working um, the hourly wage, they, they probably don't have five to $12,000 to pick up and move, which for investors is a great deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, for those that are willing to sort of overcome the the stigma, let's say, of investing in mobile home parks or even storage units, mm-hmm. uh, knowing and realizing that you're serving people who might need it the most, mm-hmm. uh, a place to live and a place to call their own, you're really building a, a life for them and you're getting double-digit returns for the investors. Is that right? Yeah, that's very true. And, and it is important. We want to invest with operators who aren't going to take advantage of the leverage they have, You know, people who aren't going to go in and raise the lot rent like two, double, which I heard somebody did last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, that, that, that is exactly right. And you know, the way somebody on the real estate guys radio said, um, he said, you know, let's live where we want, but invest where it makes sense. And yep. that's what we think about mobile home parks. That's great. Well, good. So you've got a podcast uh, as well. And I had the privilege of being on your podcast a few months ago. Uh, it's called How to Lose Money. Why in the world would you do a show called How to Lose Money? Yeah, no kidding, right? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, for years, I got to know some well-known people over the years, or at least really successful people, and I knew their stories. I knew they struggled. I knew they had a ton of pain. Before I knew that, of course, I thought that their life must have just been all easy and all roses, and it must have just be so nice to be them. But when I got to know them, I realized they had been through lots of pain and struggles and heartache and failure and even bankruptcy, but they don't share that from the stage. And, and the people sitting around the table at these conferences would often think, well, I'll never be like them. I can never be that good. I could never be that perfect. I could never be that lucky, as they say. And I saw this over and over at different events. And I said, you know, if I ever get into a place to talk publicly, I'm going to tell about my problems and failures and mistakes. And I realized there was a hunger for this. I think it's a lot easier to avoid people's mistakes than it is to replicate their successes. And so we talk about mistakes, failures, pain, loss, 
And we, uh, we try to get, uh, learn lessons from that that we can help people make sure that they don't repeat. Well, you've got an extensive history of both successes and losses. Uh, I would suspect that that would make you someone that others could trust uh, with their real money. Uh, can you share a bit about what you're doing today and uh, some of the opportunities that you've come across and that you're offering to investors? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so we, last year, we, we had done a um, townhome community in Lexington, Kentucky about a year and a half ago. And we, we had investors who were really happy with the first few months after we started. And they said, hey, what's next? And I said, you know, multifamily is so overheated. I think we've got to look somewhere else. So we started looking at self-storage. We started looking at mobile home parks. And what I realized pretty quickly was that formula that I quoted about 10 minutes ago really was very applicable to these. And I, so I knew on paper that that made sense. It was tempting to jump in. But I said, you know, we don't have the team. We haven't been through, we, we know on paper how this works. We haven't been through, um, you know, years with a team of people who have done these assets. And I'm not going to be really comfortable taking millions of dollars from people to do it so we can try it for the first time. And so what we decided to do was help investors meet experts who are really, truly experts in their fields. We, we've got a guy, uh, a company, I should say, who's been around 42 years. The senior guy, the owner, is 42 years with the company. The next employee's got 41 years. The next 38, another 35, another 33, another 30. Seriously. Wow. And they've been doing this through all these recessions, all these ups and downs. That's a company that, you know, with their track record, uh, amazing track record, that's a company I can confidently invest with. And so what we're doing is we're, um, we've put together two funds and we're allowing investors to invest in a growth fund, which is all about appreciation and all, another fund, which is income fund, which is about income first and appreciation as icing on the cake. And that's a, you know, so those are the two funds that we have right now for accredited investors. And those are accredited investors. And can you describe who that is? And what would you recommend for folks who don't qualify for accredited? What could they do to learn more about your space of, of expertise? Yeah, so they can visit us at our website, um, but we, we're happy to uh, educate people and tell people about this. And if they want to be an operator themselves, there's a lot to learn, but that could be learned um, through books and webinars and podcasts. Uh, and there are certain opportunities out there, which are generally called rule uh, regulation D rule 506 B as in boy that allow a certain number of non-accredited but sophisticated investors. Uh, that's one way to get involved uh, through crowdfunding. That's another opportunity. There are crowdfunding opportunities out there that are open to non-accredited investors. So I, I recommend people check that out. And uh, Wellings Capital is your website. That's right. wellingscapital.com. Right. Uh, and uh, for a lot of our listeners, uh, many of whom are our existing clients, uh, they have built up, uh, and, and our longtime listeners will know, we've got uh, a strong bias and an emphasis toward liquidity and uh, access to capital. Uh, and a lot of them already have very substantial sums in bank on yourself type policies uh, that we describe in our episodes. Uh, how do you see, just from your understanding, I know we've talked a bunch about the bank on yourself strategy. How do you see folks who have, uh, who are accredited investors and have big pools of cash? 
How do you see the policy, the bank on yourself strategy fitting in with some of your opportunities? Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you, you know that um, I was so impressed with what you have, Mark, that, you know, one of my own family members, my son, who's a successful real estate investor, has actually got a policy with you now. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you for taking good care of him. But, uh, you know, it seems to me that it makes sense that um, people would be able to take a loan out. They would be able to continue to, they would be able to earn income from a fund like ours, ours or another, you know, like ours, and they would be able to pay back their loan uh, at whatever the rate is set by the company. And then they would be able to get all the additional income and the appreciation from that as well. So it seems sort of like a no-brainer. A lot of funds like ours, we, we are targeting 19% total annual return in our, uh, in, excuse me, our growth fund. And we're targeting 15% total return in our income fund. The operators we're investing with have actually got quite a bit higher track record than that. But let's be honest, it's been through a really rising tide for the last decade since the recession. So, uh, but we think even with a potential downturn that we should be able to achieve those type of numbers. Amazing. So, uh, you know, the point of bank on yourself policies is not to let it sit and soak and sour inside the whole life contract. The point is velocity of money keeping that money flowing, keeping that money engaged. Now, you don't want to re rev the engine of your policy down to the last dollar, um, but by using the capital in the policy to put toward opportunities, uh, such as what Paul is sharing, uh, gives you the ability to grow the cash value and put it to work in some of the opportunities Paul's mentioning. I mean, 19% is awesome. If you could get 19% and some yield inside the policy at the same time. That's that's just icing on the cake, as we've said before. So oh, fantastic, yeah. fantastic, and I love it. And that 15%, I assume that would be appreciation plus the return of income to get that overall 15 Yeah, we're expecting the income on that to be 5 to 7% the first few years, 7 to 9% uh, in future years, yeah. and then the rest would be principal pay down and appreciation. So effectively, the rest would be realized through refinancing and then the ultimate exit of the property. So cool. So it gives, and it get, what I've noticed, Paul, too, is that as people really build up so much capital, they've got to put it somewhere. And they're usually asking me, well, where can I invest? Where can I seek uh, additional yield on from my policy's cash value? So we'll definitely be uh, letting folks know about your opportunities to, so they can do their due diligence and learn more about what you have to offer. Is there anything else that you can leave our listeners with? Any Proverbs of wisdom from your years of experience here, or just other things that you find to be your passion, things that you want to make sure folks know about and are aware of? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would recommend that your listeners really take heed of is something that I didn't know in my 30s, and that is there's a big difference between investing and speculating. And, you know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. You know, Paul Samuelson's the first Nobel Prize winner in economics from the U.S. And he said, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And so I really, really want to leave that thought with people that, you know, you really need to be very, very careful what you invest in. 
if you want to speculate, that's fine. But I recommend doing that with your eyes open and with a small percentage of your assets because, you know, let's face it, those, those stories out there, those legendary stories of the guy who, you know, painted a mur- mural or something for Facebook and his, his, his stake he got later was hundreds of millions of dollars and people who invested with Amazon the day of the IPO, now they're, you know, that's, those stories are famous because they're the exception in part, Mark. And so they're not going to be the average person's experience. And so that's, that's what I would leave yeah. from an investing point of view. Do I have time to mention one more thing? Yeah, please. I know that you have a specific passion. I don't know if you're intending to bring up uh, what you've put your life toward uh, and your legacy toward, but tell us more about how you can even um, impact the world through fighting human trafficking. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I heard about human trafficking a couple of years ago through a film called Nefarious, and I highly recommend it. It's, uh, you can rent it for $3.99 online but it's from a group called Exodus Cry. I didn't know anything about human trafficking. I heard about it a little, but what I didn't know was if you took the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, not the average, but the record profits, added those together, doubled that number, that's the estimated annual revenues generated by human trafficking worldwide. Oh my goodness, annual revenue. Yes, it's stunning. And it could be worse than that. And so we're talking in a massive, massive, horrible industry. And the impact on one child, one girl in particular, is even more stunning. And that is these traffickers sometimes make up to almost half a million dollars from one person one child per year. Imagine that was your child or mine. And so I just couldn't stand by and do nothing. You know, I was thinking if I was alive in the 1800s, I want to believe that I would have been an abolitionist fighting to free slaves. And if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, I want to believe I'd have been fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is a slavery uh, issue. And this is not making headlines every day. It's not starting a civil war, but it is every bit as horrible. And so my company, Wellings Capital, my family, we are doing what we can to try to raise awareness and raise money to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. Awesome. Well, it's another reminder that we can do well by doing good and by changing one human life, you're changing a family tree, um, the children, the grandchildren of those uh, individuals who are freed uh, will look back, hopefully, prayerfully one day and say, you know, it was someone back in uh, 2019 that made a decision to free us and to free our parents or grandparents. So right. thank God for the good work you're doing. And um, so, so happy to know you. And uh, I hope folks will be uh, willing to check out wellingscapital.com if they want to hear more. No, we're, we're, we're also on bigger pockets quite often doing blog posts, live events, etc. Great. Well, thank you, Paul. And uh, thank you for joining us on our show today. Thanks, Mark. It's been great. It was an honor. Appreciate it. 
Wow, what a great episode. Um, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more about um, just the opportunity that interviewing you know, and having other people and hosting other people on our podcast, um, what that you know provides us with. I mean, it, it allows us to be able to talk about so much more than just what you and I specialize in and, and our interests even, um, getting, but getting to hear what um, other people have you know experienced and what they're passionate about and have them share that not only with us, but with our listeners, I feel like is so valuable valuable and um, just kind of brings a nice, um, you know, little little spice it up, you know, something new for our listeners as well. Um, and so, Mark, I think you had a couple comments that you want just wanted to make as far as um, just like what stood out to you and what, what you really liked about this interview with Paul. Well, he, he brings, I think, a well-rounded view of money uh, in that he keeps a, I think, eternal perspective on it. You know, talk about long thinking long range. I think he sort of has figured out that money is just a means to an end to help you shape the world in the way that you would hope it could become. You know, I I have always told folks that money only makes you more of who you already are. If you're uh, a jerk and you get a ton of money, you're just going to be a huge jerk. You know, if you're a (laughs) great person and you get uh, a windfall of cash, you're going to be able to, you know, improve the world and improve people's lives in important ways. And he certainly brought that up toward the end of the show as well. Um, You know, what about you, Holly? Were there any takeaways from this episode that you uh, found meaningful? Um, I guess one thing that I... I guess just kind of a, a smaller takeaway is just his advice of just not sticking with one strategy your whole life mm-hmm. um, and that you should kind of keep an eye on the markets and keep an eye on the economy, see how um, things are going. And if you know changes are needed, don't just like hold on to it because that's your thing and kind of go down with the ship, as it were, you know, be mm-hmm. willing to kind of bail and, and do something else. Um, I think it's interesting, though, because it kind of conflicts with or maybe it doesn't conflict with, but something to process through is another kind of sage advice, you know, you'll hear is invest in what you know. And so what are you supposed to do if, um, you know, you only know one thing yeah, <laughs> or, you right. know, something mm-hmm. like that. But of course, I'm sure there's, there's, um, you know, kind of ways you could branch out from that because even if maybe you know one thing really well, like chances are you learned something else in the process um, of getting to know that one thing really well or doing that one thing well. Um, you know, so I guess just kind of be willing, like even if one thing is way more comfortable, you know, be willing to think, okay, but what else could I do with what I've learned from this? And what else have I now become really knowledgeable in as a result of this. And maybe now that's the new direction to go. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's some good advice um, because, you know, I think other people might tell you just kind of like stick with what you know and, and do that really well and don't ever change. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yeah. reality is that markets change, economies change, and um, change is needed. You know, change or, you know, like evolve or die, you know, mm-hmm. is kind of part of it. So um, that was just kind of a a takeaway I had for our listeners. And Mark, thanks for sharing yours as well. Um, So I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from Paul. I know that I have and just want to thank you all for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.